0: You're listening to TIP.
1: You know, again, I, I go back to football. I can't be a great quarterback and a defensive end. It's either or. Like, you can't do both, right? And I'm a firm believer that you just can't be great at multiple things at once. I think you can be great at something and then move into another space and try to excel in that. But I don't think you can grow and be great at two things at the same time. So I try to I try to stay focused with the with the multifamily value add. Uh, I'm still building up my criteria, but that's for sure the lane I want to be in.
2: Hey guys, in this week's episode, I had the chance to sit down with NFL Pro Bowler and Super Bowl champion Cliff Averill. We touch on his football career, but the focus of the conversation is on Cliff's life after football. You'll learn how he got started investing in real estate, how his first big project went, what he's learned from some of his partners, and why he loves cost segregation studies and other tax-saving strategies. We also talk about his investment in a professional pickleball team and his philanthropy that he does through the Cliff Averill Family Foundation. Cliff had a 10 year NFL career and played for both the Detroit Lions and Seattle Seahawks. He won a Super Bowl with the Seahawks in 2014 and was in the Pro Bowl in 2016 as a defensive end. Cliff is first and foremost a family man and lives with his wife and two sons in Seattle, Washington. After a career ending injury, Cliff left the NFL and has gone on to become a successful real estate investor and developer with projects throughout the country. He also pours his time, money, and energy into the Cliff Averill Family Foundation to increase awareness of type 2 diabetes in youth and to promote healthy living through nutrition and exercise. And now, let's get into this week's episode with Cliff Averill.
0: You're listening to Millennial Investing by The Investor's Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard, Patrick Donnelly, and Kyle Greve, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation.
2: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host today, Patrick Donnelly. And joining me today is a really special guest. He's an NFL football player. He was a pro bowler, won the Super Bowl. Cliff Averill. Cliff, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this. It should be really fun. I'm really looking forward to it. I know that you're a big podcast listener, and one of my favorite shows lately is called The Founders Podcast. With David Senra. And what he does is he, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but he'll read biographies on like the world's greatest entrepreneurs and leaders and athletes, you know, people like Michael Jordan, John D. Rockefeller, Steve Jobs, those kind of guys, and then just kind of synthesize like their life lessons, basically. And I heard him say that often in childhood, these guys had like this almost this belief in themselves that they were destined for greatness. And so you've had this 10 year NFL career, you've won a Super Bowl pro bowler. You now have this successful real estate career. I just wanted to hear a little bit what it was like growing up for you. And did you have this unwavering self-confidence growing up that you were going to be in the NFL? You were going to do all this business stuff that you've done. Talk to me a little bit about that. Oh man. I wish I could follow up
1: with something like Michael Jordan saying He knew from the jump he was going to be Michael Jordan. Like no, that was not necessarily the case for me. Both of my parents are Haitian. Both of them come from Haiti. So I'm very proud of Haitian. But growing up for me it was a little bit different from a culture standpoint. I had to battle this. I'm American, but I'm also Haitian lifestyle. And from a cultural standpoint, when I'm at home, I'm speaking Creole, I'm eating Haitian food. But when I walk out those doors, I'm American. I speak English. Um and trying to balance the two out, you know, my entire life. Uh was was just an interesting battle, but also made me great because I was able to pull from both cultures, right? I was able to pull, you know, the Haitian work ethic and understanding the mentality that they had, but then also being able to do the same thing from the American side. But growing up, man, I honestly thought I was going to be an NBA I like Cooper, like that's that was my thing. I thought I was going to the NBA. I love basketball. I actually love basketball a little bit more than that, I, I like football. But, um, one summer I grew like five inches. So in my head, I'm like, man, I'm going to the NBA. Like, there's no doubt in my mind, I'm will to the NBA. But it never resonated with me that my mom was only five, too. So, like, that was all she wrote. Like, I, I haven't grown since I've been six, three since I was in 10th grade, you know. But I only started playing football because I didn't start playing football until high school. and you know? I only started playing football because all my teammates from basketball were playing football. So I was like, I don't have anybody to hang out with. So let's go try this football thing out. And it was brutal the first time out. I'm like, you know, basketball players don't necessarily like getting hit. You know what I mean? But I kind of figured it out, started playing ball and figured it out. And I had a heck of a junior year and started getting scholarship offers. So that's kind of how it all started. But as far as for going to the pros, for me, honestly, I just wanted to go to college and get a degree and come right back home. And that's one of the main reasons I picked Purdue because I knew I had a great shot at being able to play early and be able to get back home within four years. Like that was my ultimate goal. But as I started playing and started getting better and some of the guys that were playing across from me were getting drafted and we kind of had the same stats. I'm like, Oh, I actually might have a chance to keep playing this for, you know, but I'm super, super competitive. And I think that's what actually drove me to get to the NFL to be able to fortunately have a, a decent career in the NFL because. I love to compete. Like, I don't like to lose at anything. I don't let my kids beat me at anything. I don't let my wife beat me at anything. Like, And I think that's the the driving factor for me, whether you talk about sports, whether you talk about business or whatever case may be, is I love to compete and
2: I hate to lose. I hate losing more than I actually like winning. I love it. So I heard you say you made this comment that like the self-confidence that's necessary to make it in the NFL, it can often become like an Achilles heel, like after a football player's career is over. Talk to me about what you meant by that. So I think sometimes our self-confidence, I'm going to
1: say ego for lack of better words, that you need to be successful in the league because the league is cutthroat. I mean, you have a new batch of guys every single year that's coming to get your job. Every single year I was in the NFL, great season, Pro Bowl season, franchise season, whatever season I might have had, they drafted somebody at my position. So like, you have to have some kind of self-confidence to be able to get you through those types of situations and show that, hey, I deserve to be here. Now, that same ego sometimes does not necessarily work in the business world when you're dealing with everyone else, right? And it can come off a little different, but also it doesn't allow you to ask questions. Because of the ego, right? It doesn't allow you to be humble to go ask questions to those that are doing really well. Now, for me in particular, from very the, from the jump, going to college, but also going to the pros, I've always tried to surround myself with the guys that I kind of wanted to be like. I wanted to be like the veterans. So I hung around the veterans to see how they operated, how they went about their business as professional athletes. So I'm okay going into any space and asking questions because that's the only way you're going to learn. But unfortunately for most athletes, we're so used to being on top that we didn't necessarily have to ask questions. We kind of knew what we needed to be done. And so when you go into the real world, that's kind of unfamiliar territory for you at times.
2: Yeah. I wanted to talk about the ESPN 30 for 30 broke, which I'm sure you've seen. I forget the exact percentage, but it's like a huge amount of professional athletes after their career end up bankrupt, you know, like across the board, whether it's football, basketball, it doesn't matter, boxing. We had Devon Kennard on the show and he was great. He actually drove his high school car, I think his first two seasons in the NFL, which I thought was great. Like that level of frugality. And, you know, I think it's really challenging for when a young man comes into like this newfound wealth, that's super difficult to handle and to know how to manage. Does the NFL provide financial literacy classes, talking to you guys about like how to invest, how to save your money, how to, you know, just be financially responsible? They do have courses, right? They have, but, you know, they're like the 101, like, hey,
1: this is how you should budget. Hey, you know, the small stuff. And I think guys need to take advantage of those types of things because a lot of times most of us come from nothing. A lot of us coming fresh out of college where, you know, you get your Pell Grant. I remember getting my Pell Grant would get uh, like $2,200. I was the richest man on campus. Like you could not tell me I wasn't the richest man on campus, right? So like you go from that and then somebody tells you they're going to write you a check for $400,000, $500,000, you're apt to do some stupid stuff. You're 22 years old, right? And I don't care if you're an athlete or not. Like if somebody writes you a check for, you know, six figures, you're going to do some, you're going to make some mistakes, right? And unfortunately, because you're in the limelight, people are going to, hey, you should do better and all these different things. But what I do know is along the same lines with, with DK, like for me, I lived with my mom during the off season. I, my first three seasons, I lived with my mom. Like I'll go back to Jacksonville and stay in the same bedroom, twin size bed. I'm an NFL guy living this, like well, my first three seasons because what I realized was the money really isn't as much as you thought it was once you, taxes and everything else comes with agent fees and all this other stuff comes out of it. I'll tell you a quick story. I remember talking to my agent, and he's like, hey, you're going to sign for, I think it's $1.2 million over three years. And, you know, all I hear is $1.2 million over three years. I'm like, oh, OK, cool. But the only thing guaranteed is the, the signing bonus, which I believe was like three hundred and some thousand dollars in my salary for that year, which was two hundred and ninety five thousand. So now I'm like, I get off the phone. Like, oh, my gosh. Like we've made it, you know, and I'm like, I'm going to give my mom 50,000. I'm going to give my dad 50, Like I'm making a checklist of all these things that I'm going to do for my parents and my family. And then I get my first check. And I call my agent. I'm like, hey, when do I get the rest of my money? And he's like, oh, how much did they send you? I'm like, I think it was like $200,000 or something like that. And he's like, no, that's everything. I'm like, "What you no, know? you told me my signing bonus was like $400,000 or whatever the number was. He's like, no, there's taxes. There's..." I'm like, who the heck is this FICA person? Like Who, like, who just took all this money out of my, my tax, like my check or whatever, right? And he's like, oh yeah. On top of that, you still owe me my percentage too, my three percentage as well, right? So now I'm like, wait up! I'm not getting that entire, you know, that whole pot that you guys told me I was going to get. Don't get me wrong, two hundred thousand dollars is a lot of money, but for a twenty two year old that hasn't bought a house, hasn't done anything, it really doesn't go that far. I, I hadn't, I didn't buy a car or anything like that, right? So like, that's when I went into the mode of like, oh wait, a- parents, I gotta wait, y'all gotta like. It's going to be a few more years before I can give you anything. I'm actually coming home during the off season to live with you guys. Right. So those types of experiences, like if you don't come from winning, you don't know. And for me, fortunately I didn't blow through all. I now I I didn't make some mistakes. I bought a brand new car, which I shouldn't have. But fortunately for me, I was able to bounce back from that. Most guys don't. Wasn't your first job at Krispy Kreme. Is that true? Yes, yes, yes. My first and only job actually or was that Chris? Actually, I lied. I, I worked somewhere else for a summer for a short period of time. But yes, I worked at Krispy Kreme. I was making like $10 an hour. I was 15 years old. And at the time, $10 an hour was unheard of. And what's funny is I worked there for a month, maybe like six weeks or something like that. And uh, spring football was rolling around. And, and so I'm like, hey, I'm going to be missing some days. I don't know how the work environment works. I'm just like, hey, maybe I could take days off when I need them, you know? I'm like, hey, I'm gonna have to tailor back on some of my schedule. I'll just work weekends, like spring football's trying starting up or whatever. And I took the first day off, and boss like, okay, but look, you know, you're gonna you're like you can't keep missing days. And I remember I missed another day. He's like, look, you can't keep missing days. So I, I talked to my manager. I'm saying, hey, I think we're going to have to quit, man, because obviously the schedule doesn't work for you guys, but I want to keep playing football. And my manager looked at me. I'm 15. He's probably 16 or 17 at the time. He looks at me. He's like, you're going to quit making $10 an hour to go play football? Like, What are you thinking? Like, what do you think you're going to make it? And if I was to see him today, he probably wouldn't even remember this, but I'm like yeah, I'm going to take a chance. Like I, I want to have fun. My parents told me I didn't necessarily have to work. Like, so I, I quit and I playing
2: football and it was the best decision I ever
1: made.
2: But your mom was not into you playing football initially. What is that right? She was kind of like, ah, I'm not sure if football is the thing for you to do.
1: Yeah, no, even when I quit Krispy Kreme, she thought I was still playing basketball. So in the Haitian culture, football at that time was barbaric. That's the American sport. Like you're not playing that. On top of that, I'm my mom's only child, right? So she's like, there's no way my child is going to be playing football. Like, I thought, you know, you're going to play basketball, you play soccer, you're going to do all these other things. But that football stuff, that leave that to the Americans almost, right? So I played my sophomore year, but I wasn't really playing much. I played my junior year and I broke my leg. But she thought I broke my leg playing basketball. This whole time she thinking I'm playing basketball. And then my senior year, somebody from work comes in with a newspaper and she's like, hey, is this your son? And she's like, wait a you have a newspaper? And you're telling my son, like, nothing but negative stuff is coming through her hair at this point, right? And she's like, he looks like he's a really good football player. She's like, football player? My son doesn't play football. He plays basketball. And the lady's like, no, he got player of the week. Like, this is your son, right? And she's like, oh, my gosh, that is my son. Because like, they had a picture of me and everything else. She comes home and is just furious. Like, what is this football stuff that you're doing? What are you talking about? Like, why are you playing I'm like, mom, like, I've been playing. I'm kind of good at it. They're telling me I could probably go to college for it. And she's like, college, you know, we're like, we had no clue how we were going to pay for college. I would probably go to a junior college or something like that, or community college of some sort. She's like, you can go to college? Like, they'll pay for it. And I'm like, yeah, that's what it sounds like. You know, if I continue to keep playing, she's like, all right, well, hey, just make sure you're careful out there. I can't, like, I can't believe I'm even agreeing to this, but make sure you're careful out there. And again, one of the best decisions both of us made <laughs> was allowing me to keep playing football.
2: Well, you've had a great career. I mean, 10 years, uh, won a Super Bowl, Pro Bowl, what, in 2016? 16, I believe. But you ended up getting hurt with a neck injury. And I've heard you talk pretty openly about mental health stuff and therapy. My wife is a therapist and we actually own office buildings where we rent out office space to therapists that are in private practice. So like that's that's kind of part of my world, is like the whole therapy counseling world. So I wanted to hear what that was like for you. You know, you just come off of a Pro Bowl, I believe. You've ha- have this neck injury where it seemed like maybe you were paralyzed. I don't. I want to hear the full story, but I just want to hear about like the challenges mentally, psychologically that you went through dealing with that because that's a rough thing. Let me paint the entire picture for you, right?
1: Because this this is. <laughs> I mean, I don't even know if I've ever even said this on a platform. I have said say it's a family members. But so this is such a whirlwind and it's such an up and down type of situation. So in 2015, we went to the Super Bowl. We lost the Super Bowl. 2015. Also, we found out we're having a, a boy. But the same weekend, we're finding out we're having a boy. My dad passes away. So it's the same like he passed away on Friday. On Saturday, I find out I'm having a boy. The next season, 2016, 2015, 2016 season, I ball out. Like, I'm killing it. But it's kind of like to not think about all the crazy stuff that was kind of going on. So we go from Super Bowl, right now I'm having a son, to my dad passing away. I'm crushing it in football. Uh, the next following season, I crush and go to the Pro Bowl, and then I have a career ending injury. And it was such a freak accident at that, right? So all these things have happened probably within a three- to four-year time, for three-year time frame, and like that, my career is over with. So the play in itself actually was a play that I've probably done a thousand times, trying to click the, the guy's heels. But unfortunately, his heel came up and hit me up underneath my chin, and it felt like whiplash almost. And both arms went numb. Now, to me, the, the sensation that I got, I've gotten before, but just in one arm, and usually they call it a stinger. So I had, I thought I had a stinger, but it was in both arms. But the, the psychological piece of all that, I'm on the floor and I try to push myself. Or I'm on the, on the turf. I try to push myself up and I couldn't. So I'm like, man, I need to hurry up and roll over because I don't want them to think I'm concussed. Right. Cause I wasn't. So I, I don't want them to think I'm concussed. And also, it was a Sunday night game, and I know my mom's watching. So I don't want her worried either, right? Like, all these things happen, like, immediately. So I get up, and if you watch some of the footage, you see me kind of shaking my hands because I started getting fillets back in my hands. And the guys are like, no, you need to lay down. We want to bring a cart out to, like, a stretcher and, and take you off the field. I'm like, first off, if I can walk, like, I'm not letting you put me on a stretcher. On a Monday on a Sunday night game where my mom's watching, she messing around to freak out, and, you know, poor thing. So I walk off to the field, but you see me kind of shaking my head or whatever, and end up going to the hospital or whatever that, that evening, and MRI, test after test after test after test, and we go through this spat where they just kept asking me, do I, are you sure you feel okay? Are you sure you feel okay? I'm like, man, guys, stop asking me. I feel fine. Like I feel like I'm going to play next week, and then they finally tell me, like, hey, uh, the reason we keep asking me is because most people do not walk in with this injury. Most people are paralyzed with this injury. I'm like, oh, right. And that's when it hit me that, okay, whoa, my career might be over with. So we go through all that process, go through. I have a, I actually have a plate in my neck about this big, that'll be in there forever. I had to get a fusion done essentially in, in my neck. And that's when I started thinking about, okay, what the heck is next, right? Because I've been playing football up until that point. I'm 33 years old. I've been playing football for 15 years, 16 years of my life, right? So more than half of my life, I've been playing football. So now it's the transition piece. But I've always had in my mind that Football is what I do, not who I am. That's the only occupation because you've been doing it for so long, it kind of becomes one. But most people like, no, it's just your job. This is how you feed your family. This is what you need to do. But it's not who you are. So I've always had that mindset. So I've always kind of prepared myself for whenever that might happen. So that whole offseason, like I just continue to just Make relationships and figure out what the next move might be. So I tried media. I had my own radio show. But the entire time I was in the league, at least the last four or five years that I was in the league, I was also doing real estate things, right? I was investing in different funds. I was doing syndications, but I wasn't necessarily doing anything on my own. And then after doing some media, I was doing ESPN, I was doing stuff in overseas and all that stuff. And real estate just kept calling me. Real estate just kept calling me. Like, And then I just decided to kind of open up my own real estate company and start to buy more real estate. And I'm sure we're going to dive into it, but that was just something that just kept calling it. I'm a big believer in chasing passions, not the money, because that's what got me this far. I genuinely loved football and money just started coming behind it, right? And money started happening. So it's the same thing with real estate and everything else that I continue to do. I just want to chase my passion and you know, if there's a financial benefit behind it. We'll take that too.
2: What was the first inspiration for real estate? Was it a book, a podcast, a mentor, somebody that got you involved? I just want to hear how you like found that passion. So fortunate
1: enough, after we win the Super Bowl, I'm my trophy right here. After we win the Super Bowl, I'm fortunate of being in Seattle. You get to meet so many entrepreneurs and different people that are doing some really cool stuff you know, you get to meet the CEO of Microsoft. You get to meet CEO of Zillow. You get to meet all these CEOs and all these people that are doing some really cool stuff. All of them own real estate. And I used to always ask myself, like, why? Like, why do y'all own real estate if your company's worth, you know, whatever, and you're making this much money? And, you know, as I dove deeper into it and we start talking, you know, there's a lot of tax benefits. There's a lot of, it's a wealth builder. It's, it appreciates over time, all these different things they were telling me. So I'm like, okay, well, maybe that's something I need to look into even more, right? The cash flow aspect of it, you know, you want the mailbox money. That's how I got into the syndications and funds and different things like that. So I started getting the itch there. And then Rich Dad Poor Dad. Honestly, I didn't read that until I retired. And so once I read Rich Dad Poor Dad and I started reading, you know, Rich Smith and Babylon and all these different books about finances, because that was another a fear of mine is like, you hear the sets, you hear guys going broke. You hear all these different things. So I didn't want to be a part of that. So I started doing my own research, started going to classes, going to different conferences and just started building from there. Let's take a quick
0: break and hear from today's sponsors.
2: Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com.
0: Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com/flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show.
2: Were you friends with DK at that point? Like have you guys talked about your investments at all or anything like that? Or did you have anybody in the NFL that was like, "Hey, you know, they're helping you out?" There was a few
1: guys like Indominus Sue. He was a teammate of mine in Detroit. He's big into real estate, and he was somebody that I would converse with a lot. DK, no, I didn't meet him. I met him actually at a real estate conference, a real estate event, and it come to find out, you know, he's into it. We had some mutual friends, and then we we've been cool ever since. You know, I, I just spoke to him recently, just talking about you know what he's thinking about doing now that he's retired, what I'm working on as well, and you know, just collabing and talking
2: about different strategies and different ideas. I wanted to hear about, you know, as an NFL player, there's people that just want your time, your money, your attention, all of that. How do you go about finding the people that you trust in, whether it's real estate, investments, whatever it is, like, talk to me a little bit about that, about like, because you got to find like people you trust. If if you don't, it's rough.
1: I think I have a little bit of a different and a unique situation in comparison to most other athletes. I give this example all the time is like, if you think of some of their smaller markets, the Detroits, maybe not Detroit, but Jacksonville, the Cincinnati's, even Cleveland, the athletes probably are some of the top earners in those cities. In Seattle, we might not come top 2000, and I'm not even joking. You know what I mean, like you just got all these tech money out here, right? You have some of these different real estate companies, and, and so there's a lot of money flowing through the city. So for me, I have comfort in that because some of these guys don't need my money. Some I've literally had conversations where guys they didn't necessarily laugh, but they chuckled, like "Oh, you made how much over your career?" Like "Oh, cool, we made that last year," you know. So like from an ego perspective, it could probably hurt your feelings, but for me, it's like that's comforting because you don't need anything I have. So now I can actually pick your brain, and you actually are giving me real information that's not biased. There's not a need behind it. There's no handout behind it. Right. So like that's comforting for me and I'm big on networking. I'm big on meeting different individuals. And that's kind of how I've been able to build
2: my, I guess, community of business folks
1: that I can rely on for advice.
2: So walk us through like your first couple of investments that you did. You ended up running to NFL players, didn't you? That's correct. That's correct. So the first real estate play that
1: I've ever made was buying my mom a house, and then I'm like, oh, that's one of the best investments I made because going back and looking at it now is like it's doubled in, in value since then. But the actual investment that I bought was I, I bought the same year I got hurt, uh, maybe three or four months after I got hurt because I was I was very much into the whole real estate play. Was I bought a condo and I was like, you know what? I know NFL players need places. Like I, I, I know what they need, so I bought a condo that was. Maybe ten minutes away from the practice facility. I furnished it, washing dryer. All the players needed to do was come with their clothes, and they're set, right? Because I know their schedule. I know what they need. So I bought that back in twenty eighteen or maybe twenty nineteen, and it was cash flow. I'm just doing well because I mean, you're getting a premium on it. You're nine month rentals or even twelve month rentals. You're getting a premium because it's furnished. And then I'm like, you know what? This is good. Let me buy another one. So I bought another condo, not too far from that, but same criteria, 10 minutes away from the uh, facility, fully furnished. This one was a three bed, two bath, a little bit bigger, just in case somebody had a family or whatever. Same thing. Just printing my, I'm saying printing money, <laughs> essentially, right? I'm like, oh man, okay, now let's try to do this, but in another city now, Uh, because my best friend is a general contract. I'm like, okay, I trust him. He was in my wedding. Like, this is my best friend. So I'm going to try something in Chicago. This is my first time investing out of state, something a little far, but now I kind of have a, a structure of kind of what I want, a criteria of what I want, what I'm looking for. So I bought another condo out there and then bought another condo. So now I'm like, okay, these condos are great, but these HOAs are kind of killing me. They're killing the bottom line a little bit, right? So now I go from single to now I went bought a, a triplex out there as well. And that was going well. We're renovating value add play, same kind of concept. Then I went big after that. I went and bought like a 58 unit from there. And we've kind of been buying bigger from there. So that's kind of been the trajectory. But, you know, you hear all these gurus, all these guys that are killing it in the game. They're like, man, just go big immediately. I'm a big believer in crawling before you walk, you know. So I like the journey and the route that I've taken because I've gotten to learn through the process. But what I have learned is, you know, just as much energy as it takes to take care of a three unit, kind of the same energy goes into a 58 unit, right? So, but again, I like the way I went about it because... You kind of get to learn the game with less money involved. So I like the way the journey I took, but I can understand why people say go big early before, you know, leave the single family stuff alone and go big. I can see why they say it, but the route I took is it made more sense for me.
2: To your point about walking before, you know, like kind of crawling for a while. I was listening to a podcast yesterday and the guy was kind of comparing real estate investing to getting a black belt in Taekwondo or karate or Brazilian jujitsu, whatever. You start out as a white belt, right? And same in real estate. You got to start off as a white belt, work your way up to the black belt. And that takes many years and you can accelerate that and go big, you know, eventually. But I do think what you said is exactly right. You got to crawl, learn at when the stakes are low and then, uh, you know, advance as you go. So talk to me about that, whatever, earning your brown belt or whatever. When you did that 58 unit, I mean, that, that's the big next step. What was that like for you and where was that?
1: So this one was in Huntsville, Alabama, actually, which is doing a really good job right now. So it's it's probably one of our best performing assets. But this opportunity actually presented itself from what I've realized with real estate real quick is real estate is the ultimate team sport. You can't do any of it by yourself. And football is a team sport. Like I think, and I implement a lot of the things that I learned in football to my business because Russell Wilson is a great friend of mine and he was a great, great, great quarterback. But Russell Wilson can't do any of it without a good running game or offensive lineman, right? Offensive lineman in front of him to protect him. Tom Brady, same exact thing. Drew Brees, same exact So it's a team sport. Now, certain guys get the credit for it, but it's a team sport. And it's the same thing with real estate. You have to get out and network and kind of build your team, you know, whether you're talking about brokers, lending brokers, whatever the case may be. And that's kind of what I was doing. I was emerging myself into that space And you start meeting different people, and one of one of my—he's a good friend of mine now. Uh, He's our lending broker. He's like, "Hey, I have a a lady that owns some property in in Huntsville. She can't take the deal down by herself. Uh, Would you be down to partner up with her?" I'm like, "Yeah, like send me her resume." But then also, I want to kind of talk to her because partnerships are like a marriage. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like you're locked in. So. Uh, we communicated and we had some really good conversation. We were aligned in kind of what we were looking to do. And I pulled the trigger with her. She already owned 120 units or so in the area. She already had the infrastructure. She had the team. She had the property manager. You know, we went to go see her properties and seeing how the management was going. And it just made sense. So that made that next jump a little bit easier for me because I was also partnering up with someone and I was able to pick their brain and their experience of owning bigger assets than what I was used to at the time. So it ended up working out really well.
2: So I saw that interview that you did with her. Tell me her name again. Is it Nelia? Nelia. Yeah. So tell me some of the things that you learned from her. I mean, she'd been in the game for several years, it sounded like, and was in Seattle, had this project in Huntsville. Talk to me a little bit about what you learned from her.
1: Nelia's awesome. I think the biggest thing is... She actually taught me like having a team is important, but having structure is even more important. Right. You know, we have monthly calls. She's essentially like the asset manager. Right. So we have monthly calls. She talks to the property managers probably weekly, if not every other week, because she has other assets as well. But I would say the biggest thing with her is making sure your structure for your company is correct. is on point. Make sure you have the meeting set up. Make sure your team understands what your expectations are you know, the property we bought, it was a big value add property. And like watching her kind of direct traffic, you know, and obviously I'm a part of those conversations and I'm telling her, Hey, we should probably do it this way. It's a teamwork, right? She learned from me, but I'm more so learning from her and how she manages all of those different individuals, whether it's contractors, whether it's property managers, whatever it may be, the bankers, whatever it may be, just understanding how to navigate in that space. I think it's been huge for me because I've been able to implement that with all my other assets that I have as well.
2: So talk to me a little bit about the partnership itself. Were you 50-50 partners and how did you divide up the work? I mean, it sounded like she was the one with the experience that knew how to do the value add. Were you primarily the the financial backer or just talk a little bit about how the partnership works? No, so I don't care what kind of partnership it is. You're
1: going to have to have some skin in the game when you're dealing with me, right? (laughs) Like You're going to have to put some money into it too. But, and, and she was very much willing to do so. But what we ended up doing was, We agreed to how much, you know, she would be able to put in and I would make up the difference or whatever the case might be. But then I gave her a little bit more equity because I knew she was going to be the asset manager. And she had to get us to the finish line of the refinance for that to actually kick in. So we put it basically like an NFL contract. Again, there's incentives, right? To be able to get to the finish line, but also to own more of the asset. So that's kind of how we structured it. She became an asset manager. We gave her, you know, I think I would say we gave her an extra 15% that wouldn't kick you until we actually refi and get got the property stabilized. And it's been great. It's been great. And that structure, actually, I just learned it from, honestly, li- listening to podcasts. And it just made sense in that particular moment to be able to implement that. But she definitely has some skill in the game and then has a little bit more equity for her role as well.
2: You mentioned the podcast and I know you, when you work out, you listen to real estate podcasts. I'm, I'm just kind of curious who you listen to, what you like to listen to, what you've been into lately, anything that stands out? Oh man. It's funny. So I used to I went from listening to music to listening to podcasts
1: when I work out. But of course, you know, you start off with the bear pockets all there. They they have so many different podcasts that you can listen to for beginners all the way through, you know, syndicators. I listened to uh, actually Rod Cleef. I actually just went to one of his events last week, I think it was. I listened to what's her name? Uh I can't remember her first name. But uh the Cash Flow podcast. There's there's quite a few of them that I mean, if we thumb through it, I can list them all. But it's quite a bit. And that's literally all I listen to every day, all day. I don't know what the hottest music is out right now. I don't know what the nice, the hottest the movies that are rolling out because I seriously only listen to podcasts day in and day out. To just learn, it's just a great opportunity to be able to learn from other people's experiences. And then at some point you just got to go implement.
2: Yeah, exactly. Are you on real estate Twitter? Do you follow any of the guys on real estate Twitter? There's a real estate Twitter? Well, I'm not really on Twitter, to be honest with you. I tell you what, check out real estate Twitter. It is a gold mine. I mean, absolute gold mine. And it's like a really super giving community. If you follow the right guys, like there's a handful of guys that, you know, you can you'll figure out who to follow. But I've been just really impressed with the real estate community on Twitter.
1: So I am a part of a few different groups like on Facebook and different things like that to, you know, one, it helps with deal flow, but then also just again to see how people are taking down deals in this environment right now, too, right? So I'm a big, big believer in just immersing yourself into that community and then just learning from people's experiences. You know, learning like I said early, right? When I walked into the locker room, I looked for the veteran players in there because I wanted to learn from them and their experiences. It is no different with the real estate.
2: One thing on real estate Twitter. Now that I'm thinking of it, was I learned about cost segregation on real estate Twitter maybe last summer. So I've been doing deep dives into cost segregation. I had a guy on, Mitchell Baldridge is his name. He's got a company called Cost Seg Solutions. I think it's called. And It's really interesting. He said in the interview that only like three to 5% of real estate investors take advantage of cost segregation studies, which kind of blew my mind. But yeah, it is crazy. So I know that you're into it. Can you talk to me a little bit about your experience with it?
1: Yes. Cost seg, you know, I, I think is one of those things that it's a gold mine once you find out about it. Right. Because especially if you're a real estate professional, you know, I think there's so many ways to be able to use it. And I've had nothing but a great experience with it so far. I've done cost seg on every one of my properties to be able to, you know, roll all those essential, essentially tax credits, write-offs, whatever you want to call it up front. And then, you know, you get to use those against any earned income or whatever else too. Right. So I'm big on it. I know they're kind of gradually kind of trying to phase it out right now, but hopefully, hopefully somebody gets in the office and kind of changes that, I guess. But yeah, no, I, I'm a big proponent of, of cost saving. And I just think that if more people knew about it and understood it, because at the end of the day, I don't care what space you're in, financially or occupation or profession, one of the biggest expenses you're going to have is going to be taxes. Right. And I know I feel like most people would like to mitigate that as much as possible. So if you, if there's legal ways of doing it, you should probably do it. <laughs> I mean, you should probably do it. I would rather get that extra tax money and deploy in the way that I feel needs be, whether it's, cause I do a lot of charity work as well. Like I would rather have that extra income to do the charity work that I want to do. Right. Instead of giving it back to Uncle Sam or whatever the case may be. So I'm big on being able to try to save legally, of course, as much taxes as possible to be able to deploy and and get back to the community as I see fit.
2: Yeah, it's huge. It's something that I I just did a study and uh, I'm eager to keep doing more, but just so for our listeners that don't know, it allows you basically to kind of front end a lot of the depreciation expenses. So you take a ton of expense in the first year or so, you can do 100% bonus depreciation. As you mentioned, they're phasing it out to like 80% and 60%. I think right now it's at 80% of- Yeah, this yeah. Yeah, and I have seen whatever you talks about in the Senate or whatever, talks about getting it back to 100%. So we'll see, fingers crossed that that, uh, that happens.
1: I hope so, I hope so.
2: I think collectively, right? Because we
1: have a housing issue in the country. There's not enough housing for everyone in America right now. So having little incentives like this- allows people to get back into the development game, allows people to get back into want to get into like all of the assets that I own are, are value add assets. So I want to get into, I'm not saying in certain communities, but I want to get into certain pockets to be able to upgrade and add value to whatever property I, end up purchasing these different individuals and tenants love the property. And I also get a tax benefit from that as well. Right? So I, I just think that's a need. That's a must for both parties, the people that are putting these projects together, and also the tenants and, and everybody
2: else, the housing issue that we have. I wanted to hear have you explored opportunity zones at all? Have you been involved in any opportunity zones? I've looked into it, but I
1: haven't pulled the trigger on any of them. I had an opportunity to invest in the Opportunity Zone Fund, but I didn't pull the trigger uh, on that either. But it's definitely interesting. I just, you know, there's so many ways to make money in real estate. You know what I mean? And, and what I realized, especially early on, because I was definitely the guy that was chasing every shiny eye. I, I, I had the shiny object syndrome. Oh, man, industrial. Oh, man, multifamily. Oh, man, single family. All, you know, like there's just so many ways to, to do it. And I just had to hunker down. Like, I can't play quarterback in a defensive end at the same time. You know what I mean? Like, I need to focus on being great at this thing right now. I tell my wife all the time, like, you can't be great at multiple things at one time. You can be great at something and then move on to something else and be great at that. But you can't be great at all of them at the same time. There's not enough time to not, you know. So I had to hunker down and say, I'm going to just do value add multifamily properties. And then once I get this kind of going, I'll start to look at other ways with the, the opportunity zones and learning the rules and regulations of that, which I'm sure I could do that with what I'm doing now. I just don't have the bandwidth to like completely take on something like that right now.
2: I hear what you're saying about the shiny object syndrome. I've got the same thing, like doing this podcast, I'm exposed to so many different people doing so many different strategies. And it's like, it's a real thing. It's a real danger.
1: Oh, it, it is, it is. And then you just end up honestly kind of going in circles a little bit and never really get good at, what do they say, a jack of all trades, a master of none or something like that. Like that's a real thing. And then I, I just feel like you don't really get, you don't push your potential as much as you could if you just it down and, and kind of just got great at one thing.
2: Yeah, focused on your niche. So right now it's multifamily value add. You're you're in Huntsville. Are you in other areas?
1: I'm in Huntsville. I'm in Chicago, and I'm in Seattle. And I know some people are like, oh man, you know certain cities because you know some are tenant friendly, some are, are landlord friendly. Huntsville is very much landlord friendly. Chicago's tenant friendly. It is is more of a tenant friendly type of city. But there's still opportunities, right? There's still opportunities. You got to get creative a little bit, but. Those are the three markets that I'm in right now, and I'm looking to get more assets in the Southeast region for sure.
2: What about Columbus? I heard Nelia, she mentioned Columbus, Ohio in your interview, I believe. She did. She did. So, you know, I like the Midwest.
1: You know, it's funny because in 2020, when I was really getting things going, they're like, oh man, the Midwest is one of the markets you should probably stay away from. You know, they don't appreciate, they don't do this, they don't do that. But come to find out over the last three or four years, the Midwest, certain pockets, of course- whether you talk about Chicago, you talk about Columbus, Indianapolis, all those—they actually were the more stable regions in comparison to you know. Of course, everybody was down in Texas. Everybody was down in in Florida, and all. now things are kind of tapering off in those areas. But things continue to keep rising in the Midwest. So it's been interesting, kind of watching kind of the the, the progression of all these different regions.
2: Cliff, I just wanted to ask a little bit about the projects with your wife. I know you guys have done some luxury spec homes in Seattle. Tell me about those. Tell me about like your strategy, how you think about doing those projects and then how you're, once the project is complete, what are you doing with the funds at that point?
1: Yes. So it is (laughs) working with the wife can be, you know, interesting nonetheless, because you can't communicate with them like you would like to when it comes down to, you know, some of your other business partners, but I think, you know, after some trials and tribulations, I think it's all about having assignments, right? And knowing your position. I'm the defensive end. You're the DB. Like we do two different things, but we work together, right? So once I kind of got that in perspective, you know, her role essentially is interior decorating. Her and my business partner's wife as well are both interior decorators. So they come in once we kind of get the the process going, have, have the house drywalled and all that good stuff. They kind of, you know, pick out the material for the floors, you know, and whatever other access that we might need. So that's kind of her role in the grand scheme of things. And then with the luxury homes, what we tend to do is obviously we flip them, we sell them. Most times or not, we try to pre-sell them, to be honest with you. Just it's always good to have a buyer already during the process because you don't have the stresses of trying to put it on the open market. Might take a little bit less, but That's okay, because I I rather, you know, I'm all about guaranteed money. Even when I played in the NFL, it's about guaranteed money. I didn't care how big the contract was. It was about how much money is guaranteed to come to me. And that's kind of how I approach this. And then once we get the proceeds, that's what we use to go buy multifamily properties. We go buy our distressed properties with those proceeds. And then we keep the principal there and try to flip it again with another house. And we tend to do that probably every 18 to 24 months. It's kind of our timeline as far as for being able to get a project going, flipping it, and uh, you know, looking for multifamily properties in, in,
0: in the meantime. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
2: Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's
0: airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months.
2: that's landroverusa.com all right
0: back to the show
2: and so the multifamily stuff is outside of seattle right the the distressed properties you're looking at you mentioned huntsville alabama are you finding anything else out there right now like is there anything on your radar
1: so huntsville alabama i'm actually looking at a project right now out there that that's a real big value add property we're running through the numbers right now but I love Huntsville market. It's one of the the fastest growing markets in the country. You know, a lot of jobs, a lot of occupations there as well. I like Chicago as well because I, I like the Midwest. Let me say that, but I like Chicago in particular because I have a team out there. I know the area. I know the market. I went to school not too far from there. Some of the, the rental things that you would typically try to shy away from out there is out there, but I like the market because I, I can add value and, and force appreciation. And then I'm looking, I love the Southeast region of the country, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Alabama. I'm looking for some different assets there, in particular, Jacksonville, Florida. I've been kind of looking and poking around there, but I think some opportunity will present themselves here in the next 12 to 18 months.
2: And that's home originally, right? Jacksonville.
1: Yes, yes, yes. I think it'd be pretty cool to, to own something back at home. I actually looked at trying to purchase the apartment complex that I grew up in actually yeah, a few years ago, but it, they wanted way too much for it. So I'm, I'm waiting to see when, when those numbers will come down, but I think it'd be really cool to own something at home. But also me starting my real estate business, and I, and I mentioned this early on is it's also about helping family and friends be able to invest in real estate uh, for generational wealth. And I think something being close to home would help them understand the process a little bit more as well. So that's why another reason why I'm looking at Jackson.
2: Is your mother is she involved a little bit at all with the real estate stuff? Or do you want to get her draw her in a little bit? She's my biggest investor. (laughs) She's all in. She wish I would
1: have started a little bit earlier because you know she's getting she just turned 65. So she's looking to her retirement plan outside of me, I guess. Uh, she wants to have some money put away and um, she's always, hey, hey, let me know about the next project. You know, I got a couple dollars saved up. Please let me know. I want to, you know, get some cash flow going and all that good stuff. So she's, she's definitely involved from an investor standpoint.
2: That's awesome. Are you looking at any other asset classes at all, like self-storage or industrial or anything like that? Does anything like that interest you at all? Or are you going to stick to multifamily and like you said, stay in your lane?
1: Exactly. You know, that shiny object syndrome is is real. When you first get started, I've looked at, you know, single family, multifamily. I've looked at self-storage, development, all those different things. And, you know, again, I, I go back to football. I can't be a great quarterback and a defensive end. It's either or. Like you can't do both, right? And I'm a firm believer that you just can't be great at multiple things at once. I think you can be great at something and then move into another space and try to excel in that. But I don't think you can grow and be great at two things at the same time. So I try to I try to stay focused with the with the multifamily value add. Uh, I'm still building up my criteria, but that's for sure the lane I want to be in.
2: That's such a good point. I wanted to hear a little too about: Do you have any NFL superstars that have gone on to a career in real estate that you admire, that you want to clone, that you want to copy their career at all?
1: For sure, uh, there's a couple in particular. Elvis Dumerville, he was a heck of an athlete, heck of a defensive end, played, I don't know, 10, maybe 12 years in the NFL. And he's doing some big developments down there in Miami, South South, South Florida. And I mean, he has a huge development, maybe, maybe like three or 400 units or something crazy like that going on out there. And he's been crushing it. He's doing his thing. And then uh, a guy by the name of Terrence Murphy, he's actually kind of like a mentor to me. Terrence Murphy, he started off as a broker and he's built uh, his company out to do, I want to say... Well over a billion dollars in sales or something like that. Now, you know, he's in the acquisition phases of his career and, and he's doing a lot, a lot of cool things. So I would say those two guys in particular are guys that, that I'm paying attention to. But I, I I know quite a few other guys that are in the real estate space, but those two guys in particular are like taking it to another level.
2: Is that something you consider for yourself, like brokerage? Does that interest you at all? Like the sales side of things or no?
1: No, know. And I understand why that's the route he took because his career kind of ended a little early. Uh, we actually had the same career ending injury. Hence, uh, and that's how we kind of got connected or whatever. And I think he went in that phase. He went that route first because the capital piece of it, right? Being able to accumulate some capital to be able to go out and buy and hold some things. And that's where he's at now in his career. I think I could bypass that piece a little bit and just go right into being able to I, I'm, I'm just big into just being able to own something and being able to get cash flow. I think wealth is cash flow. I don't think buying and flipping outside of taxes and all that other stuff. For me, buying and flipping isn't necessarily the game plan that I would have. I think that's a great game plan once you get started to be able to accumulate and get some cash to be able to go buy some assets that you can hold on to.
2: I wanted to switch gears a little bit here and talk about pickleball. You, I hear you've, you're into pickleball. You've gotten into, did you buy a team? Tell me about your pickleball adventures. D.C.
1: Pickleball team, baby. I'm all in on pickleball, man. I play every morning, played this morning. I've um, got a group of us that play, uh, you know, at five o'clock every morning to get our cardio in. And I didn't start playing pickleball till this summer, actually, uh, or this spring break. During my kids' spring break, the guys, you know, we went to a, a resort and some guys that I knew were there. and They're like, hey, man, come play some pickleball. Needed something to do. I went out there. I haven't stopped playing since. And I thoroughly enjoy it. And I, I like it so much that obviously I invested into a, a pickleball team. But one of the main reasons why I invested in the pickleball team was because I was playing this summer in Seattle. I was playing at, at a court in the middle of the day. It's probably like 12 o'clock, one o'clock. And I see about 20 high schoolers come there to play. And I'm like, if the kids are playing at such an early age, it's true. It's a, it's a real thing to, to look into. And they come to find out my son has been playing for like two or three years as well at school. So I'm like, oh, it's a no brainer. If the kids are playing, this is the route I need to go in. So I thoroughly enjoy that sport. It's, it's fun.
2: So how does that work buying a team? Is it a doubles team? Like, how does the whole thing work? I know like Tom Brady has bought a team. LeBron has bought a team. Kevin Love, I think. We're all in the same league. So originally I was looking to own, like,
1: try to find a franchise here in the Seattle market, but somebody already owned that. So for me, I actually partnered up with a group that already owned the team. You know, they they were already a part of the MLP and it's Major Pickleball League, MPL. Uh, so I, I just messed that up, but MPL. And I was fortunate enough to meet these guys. I started kind of letting people know that I wanted to get into our ownership group, and these guys in particular, I've already known them, already had a relationship with them. So it only made sense. So it's myself, Odell Beckham, Katie Upton, I believe, and a couple other big name individuals that are in it. And, and it's pretty cool.
2: That's awesome. So what's your level? Like when you play, are you playing like three, five, four? I mean, are you like higher than that? I mean, I imagine.
1: No, again, you know, you start seeing some, you go to some of these matches, right? You go, like I went to a, a tournament last year, right after, you know, I became a part owner and uh, not last year, but this summer. And I thought I was getting good. Until I seen some of those pros play. I think my Duba rating is like a three-five. It's nothing too crazy just yet. But once you get to that four-five, you get to the fives, those guys are on a whole different level, you know. But I'm training and, and I, I definitely want to get above a four at some point. But I don't I don't know if I'd practice enough to get to that level. But I, I like I said, I thoroughly enjoy the sport.
2: That's awesome. My co-host Robert Leonard, who you originally spoke with, I think he's actually going to start a pickleball media company. So doing podcasts, doing a newsletter, doing events, stuff like that. So
1: he should definitely do it. And when he does, please let, reach out to me, and, and I'd love to just get on there and, and talk shop. Because you know, you see some of these different athletes now; they're making some real money too. But they just we're, we're signing guaranteed contracts and different things like that now but uh, to see the sport grow and to see some of these athletes and what they're able to do. And that ball's moving fast, man. It's it's a different pace. It's more fun than people think. You know, those are, I I told some of my NFL guys like, Hey man, playing pickleball now. They're looking at me like, what are you talking about? Like you're not playing basketball anymore. Like, what? And then some of them get, they get into it and then they fall in love as well.
2: Yeah. It's addictive. It's a blast. My dad's 81 years old and he, he tries to play like about three times a week. And my wife and I will play against my mom and, and him. And they beat us, you know, like they, they're, they play all the time and it's just like a lot of touch and skill and like, there's a lot of strategy to it.
1: Patience. Oh man. and That's why I try to tell like, I'm thinking it's the new form of golf, to be honest with you, right? You know how you can play golf till the end, like pickleball, somewhat of the same, like I, you go out there and you see some of these, these 60 year olds, 65 year olds, they will dominate you. <laughs> you know I mean, like, so it's, it's uh, I, I like it for that, for the longevity piece of it too
2: wasn't pickleball was it founded around seattle like somewhere in that area right yes bainbridge
1: island it's uh like it's a, you take a ferry to it but yes i mean come to find out some of these people have been playing pickleball for like the last 40 years you know what i mean like i heard bill gates he was like yeah i've been playing pickleball since i was a kid like, what this is all new to us you know so it's huge out here it's huge out here
2: that's good stuff i've seen franchises like it's we have one in columbus called pickle and chill and it's kind of like a Top Golf concept, you know, where it's pickleball, but you got drinks, food, that kind of thing. It's you know just entertainment in general. Do you have anything like that? Nothing out
1: here. The group that I'm a part of, uh, the investment group that I'm a part of, we are looking at franchising something very similar to that pickle and chill. But but they're they're going to be popping up a little bit of everywhere. Uh, I think that 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 concept is going to be huge. You know, whether you talk, you know, just being able to go out, have some food, have a couple of drinks, and still get out there and, and play. I think that there's going to be a, a lot of that going on. Uh, it's all about who market it the best to be able to take off like a top golf, though.
2: It's pretty cool. That's awesome. I, I loved hearing about the pickleball investment. So good luck with that. I hope it goes well. Me too. Me too. I'd admit, I typically don't do passion investments. You know
1: what I mean? Because business is business at the end of the day. But I feel like, Although I love this sport and I, I like it a lot, you know, I do think there's, there's room for it to, it's going to, it's going to boil down to how do you market it on TV? How do you watch it on TV? Once they figure that piece out, I think it takes off.
2: Yeah. I mean, I know personally myself, I'll get on YouTube and just watch doubles. You know, it's like, I love it. Like I did a tournament last Christmas and I just like, before the tournament, I just was watching hour after hour of YouTube
1: pickleball stuff. You go down rabbit hole, you go down rabbit hole over YouTube, man.
2: I wanted to hear, too, about your philanthropy stuff. You've got a family foundation. I know you're really involved with that, and that's super important to you. Can you tell us about it? Tell us about just the mission of it and how much time you're devoting to it, some of the good stuff that you've been up to.
1: Yeah, so we have the Cliff Abel Family Foundation. We actually just celebrated 10 years of of you know some of the work that we've been doing. It's geared towards juvenile diabetes, but also the, the education system and health system in Haiti as well. It's been our mission, but we do a wide range of different things. And I'm just grateful, one, to do something like this for the last 10 years. But, you know, we host football camps in Jacksonville. We've host football camps in Haiti as well, have health fairs and different things like that. But the biggest thing we're doing right now, one of the big missions that we, we have right now is called the Cliffs Crew, which is 10 black and brown boys that I've been mentoring since they were in third grade. Now they're all in eighth and ninth grade. And it's all about exposing them to different professions that are just here in their backyard. But in general, unfortunately, you know, most black and brown kids in this country, they only see themselves as athletes because that's all we see kind of on TV. But I took them to like the Seahawks facility as an example. I took them to the Seahawks facility. And when you think of the Seahawks, you just think of the athletes. You just think of the guys on the field. But there's so many more occupations that are there in that building. Uh, You know, whether you talk about engineers, architects, you know, lawyers, chefs, doctors, the list is long, but you don't know that. And every one of those guys, when we won the Super Bowl, all of those guys got a Super Bowl ring, too, because they play a big role in the success of that organization. But if you don't know that, you can't dream to be a part of that. Right. You don't if you don't know that you can't aspire to do these types of things. So I'm, I'm excited about that. My goal is to take them all the way through college and hopefully, you know, go to their weddings when they get older or something like that. But it's been pretty cool being able to to be a part of these kids lives and try to, you know, again, expose them to different opportunities and different professions that they can become outside of being an athlete or an entertainer.
2: That's so awesome. So you've known these kids since they were in third grade and they're in eighth now.
1: Yes, I've been with them since third grade. We meet every other week. During the summertime, we take trips. I just took them to D.C., Washington, D.C., this last summer for a week. And it was all about, again, being able to go to different organizations, lobbyists, and different professions that are there in D.C. to just exposure. Went to the FBI, did a whole bunch of cool stuff. It was great.
2: That is so awesome. And it's how many kids that you're involved with? Ten. Ten kids. Ten of them. That is so cool. That is a great idea. Thank you. No, it's been it's been great. It's been great.
1: Shouts out to to my team, Jeanette Owusu, who runs my foundation. You know, she she keeps she does the day to day stuff while I try to build this real estate stuff out.
2: Yeah, that's so great. Just that exposure is so important. You know, like for anybody, you know, like there's so many things in the world that you can get involved in that if you don't know about. Oh yeah, for sure. I want to hear like what's next. Like ten years down the line, if we were to talk, like what are you going to be up to? I want to hear too. Like your why. Like what is all this about for you? All right. I'll start off with my why, then I'll get
1: to my 10 year plan. Well, the 10 year was pretty easy. I want to be retired, like actually be retired. But my why is it's it's multiple things. My why is I don't want to be a statistic, right? When it comes down to athletes and you know, we all hear the stories and I think it's misconstrued a little bit, but you know, at the end of the day, I still don't want to be a, a, a statistic. I want to be able to leave my kids something. I can't leave them the helmet. I can't leave them the pads, right? I want to leave them something that they can go out. And continue to build and grow off of. And then along the same lines is, although I'm retired from one profession, I think it's extremely important for my kids to see me get up every single day and go to work. I don't want them to ever understand and and believe that this just happens without putting me in work. Right. So I think it's extremely important for them to see me every day. Again, they see my routine, it's go work out. It's take them to school. And if they're off, they see me go to the office or be in my home office and working. My son goes to the projects, uh, to my sites with me, taking them to Chicago to see some of the, the, the projects that we're working on uh, here in the next couple of weeks. So I think it's extremely important, again, for them to see it. Exposure, right? Seeing put work in. And these are the results that you get. And then the last thing is, again, I want to retire and I want to be like, I, I want to have enough cash flow coming in to sustain my lifestyle. Again, I think cash flow is is true wealth. Being able to have, I, I joke with these guys all the time is like, i rather have $100,000 coming in a month than have $5 million just sitting in the bank. See what I'm saying? Like that, Like that's true wealth to me. And that's what I would like to have. And I want to be in South Africa somewhere and that's still being generated, right? So that's my ultimate goal. That's my why. Those are my why's is I want to make sure, you know, the biggest thing is making sure my kids understand and see uh, work being put in and seeing
2: the results of. And you've got two sons, right? Xavier and Xander. Is that, did I get that right? Xavier Rannon. Yes, my two boys. 12 and then my youngest son is eight here real soon. Twelve and eight, and the oldest, you take him to the projects and see what you're up to. I think both of them, take him both, okay. Because my oldest, he
1: actually got to be a part of my career, you know, pretty much his entire life as far as for the NFL, right, up until I retired. My youngest, he's like, Dad, why do people know your name? Like, yeah, well, like you're just Dad to me, you know. So it's important for both of them because they both have two vantage point, different vantage points for both of them to see me doing real estate because honestly, the odds of them, I don't know if they want to play ball or not, but I understand the odds is is very slim. But one thing I do know is this real estate thing, you can have a good startup platform to be able to scale and do some special stuff as well. So I think it's just extremely important for them to to go to the projects, see what's going on, see how the numbers are ran. My oldest is starting to learn how performers work and different things like that as well.
2: Awesome. So would your hope be for them to get into real estate or do you kind of leave it up to them to decide their own path in life? It's a tough role as a father, like how much to push and guide and let them follow their own North Star.
1: I think the core principle of it all is to make sure you work for yourself you know, and, and create for yourself. Don't be dependent on anybody else. That's the core principle of what I want to show them and teach them. If they went into real estate, that would be great. But you know, what I've realized is, you know, what your plans for your kids are with the plans actually becoming is two different things. But I do want this to be an option for them. if this is the route they want to go in. I want this to be an option for them, but I'm not going to force it on them just like I'm not going to force football on them. I want to give them options as a father. My job is to give them options and then they figure out what it is that they want to do in exposure. Right. So if they took if one took over, that'd be cool. If they don't, you know, we'll sell it and, and hopefully they go create the next Amazon or something like that. I don't know.
2: Yeah. Who knows, right? So the you said the 12-year-old, does he hang out with any of the guys that you mentor, the Cliffs crew? Like, does he spend time with them? Both of them
1: do. They both, yeah. They, when we go on these trips, they both go to them. Whenever I have my meetings, they both go to them because there are certain things that I honestly, I talk to the Cliffs crew guys that sometimes I forget to even communicate with my kids sometimes. So I think it's important for them to be a part of all of that. But my 12-year-old is very much... He's more in it than, say, my youngest one, but they both are are very much part of the Cliffs
2: crew. That's awesome. So, Cliff, this has been really great. Is there anything that we haven't touched on that you wanted to talk about at all today? Oh, no. I mean, I think we hit everything,
1: man. I'm, I'm just grateful that, that I was able to join you, talk about a wide range of different things, talk everything outside of football, right? You know, most times tonight it's going to be football-based, but, you know, I appreciate you guys having me. I look forward to hopefully 10 years from now telling you how great you know, I was talking about this 10 years ago went, you know, and, and continue to keep building. So I appreciate it. And people can keep track of the journey as far as to the real estate stuff on TikTok. That's mostly all my real estate stuff. And that's just at Cliff Averill. Um, and then, you know, I'll post from time to time stuff on, on Instagram as well, which is again, at Cliff Averill.
2: And if you get the chance, check out real estate Twitter. I think you'd love it. Yes. I have to check it out. I have to check it
1: out. I definitely will, you know, just to see what everybody's talking about. I'm real estate... It's funny because the same approach I had with football which allowed me to I guess have a little bit of success and I'm hoping it does the same is I'm real estate everything I'm paying attention to different markets trends everything just saying just staying in the loop on everything I think that's the only way to get better at this
2: yeah I mean it's so so much uh, can carry over from football all the practice and watching game film and all that can all you know carries over to real estate whatever you do like you can apply all those skills that you know you develop from whatever started you started what high school right so you got a late start but like it worked out great
1: it kind of worked out so let's and try to do it with real estate
2: yeah absolutely well thanks Cliff this has been awesome really appreciate your time and uh, best of luck with you thank you thank you guys for having me i appreciate you guys okay folks that's all i had for today's episode i hope you enjoyed the show and i'll see you back here real soon thank you for listening to t-i-p Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by The Investor's Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional.
0: This show is copyrighted by the Investor's Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.